Welcome to He's Gone, But the Money's Not, the podcast that's all about empowering women and families to take control of their finances. I'm Nicole Roberts, a financial advisor with over a decade of experience. In this podcast, we explore the intersection of two important aspects of our lives, death and money. Each episode, we either talk through financial principles or have conversations with widows who bravely share their stories and wisdom. Why? Because statistically, most women will find themselves in a position where they become the sole financial decision maker in their family. It's time to build financial literacy and confidence. So whether you're a widow, someone preparing for the future, or simply curious about the intersection of finances and life's uncertainties, you're in the right place. Let's dive into today's episode of He's Gone, But the Money's Not. Welcome to the He's Gone, But the Money's Not podcast. Today, we're very excited to have Emily on with us today. So welcome, Emily, and just dive in and tell us your story. Okay, Nicole, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity to share uh, with other widows and folks out there. And um, so with my story, I was married to my best friend in life. His name was Nathan um, for one month shy of 20 years. And he died unexpectedly to COVID complicated by uh, double pneumonia. And um, as part of that, we both actually were were pretty sick and bedridden, and he ended up in ICU for 11 days and placed on a ventilator before ultimately his organs started to fail. And we have four amazing kiddos together right now. Their ages are between 12 and or yeah, 12 and 21. And at the time, uh, I was really the sole breadwinner. I was a traveling executive. I worked crazy hours. I um, was traveling at least half time, if not more than half time. And so really, Nathan was the core of our family. He did all the cooking, the logistics with the kids, maintaining. We live out in the country, so he maintained our house. Like He took care of all of that. I was very spoiled. <laughs> so... Um, when I lost him, it just felt like my whole infrastructure and world imploded. And um, I had a lot of help from my in-laws, especially that first year as I continued to travel and work. And then ultimately, I decided to do something that was much more flexible on the schedule side and um, overall logistics side as well. Wow, that's a crazy. It's very different from other widow stories we hear too, of you being the main breadwinner. So We'd like to dive into that a little bit. Yeah. So I think in some ways, I was very blessed with that because um, unlike a lot of widows, I did not take a huge income impact when I lost my spouse. So um, he wasn't necessarily bringing in a salaried income, but of course, he did a lot of things around the house that I wasn't paying anyone to do. And um, we had to make a lot of adjustments there. But um for me, with finan- the finances, uh, even though nothing really changed about my job and my income for quite a while, I still noticed that I became super conservative. And um, although we had worked for many years to be debt-free as much as possible, um, and we had a few months worth of money and savings, I really found myself just more, just more. I needed more and more and more in a very liquid form because I was it for my kids in my mind. Like I, that was it. 
if anything happened to me or my job or I wanted to get a different job, then I had all these worries that it wasn't going to be enough. Um, one of the stories I share is even in my house, I put in a big security camera system and I was like, I don't want one that can be hacked and I want this and I want that. And I mean, I live out in the country in the middle of nowhere. It's not like there's a lot of people trying to get into my house, but I just correlate that a lot with the finance side of I wanted as much money as possible because somehow it felt like a security blanket. And um, then over time, over the last couple of years, I knew that I wanted to expand investing and what I could or should be doing there. And without having that thinking partner and without having that person that I could just say, hey, what what do you think about this? Should we do that? Um, I, I really just struggled with that. I knew I wanted to put some in real estate. I knew I wanted to put some, you know, whether it was in index funds or mutual funds or something else. But I just really hesitated a lot with what was the right amount and having that insecurity of not having your spouse that's there almost like a safety net when you're making those decisions. Yeah, a safety net and also someone who to make the decision with you, right? Did you find that was hard? That nobody else was as involved or as invested in your decisions as you are. And so it's hard to get advice from people, right? When they their that decision doesn't affect their life the same yeah. way it affects yours yeah that's absolutely right and figuring out you know almost having your own board of advisors that you pull around you became very important to me um i've always been somebody who i i would like to ask three or four different people's opinion before forming my own opinion about something or what was the right thing for me but that takes a lot of time And as a widow, that's something you don't really have a lot of because there's a ton of things now that you have to do that you didn't do before. And maybe some things that you're learning that you've never done before. So for me, um, I did end up spending quite a bit of time just interviewing different people, whether it was a financial planner, whether it was uh, something to do with my life insurance or estate planning or whatever it was, talking to multiple people in those fields and trying to formulate my own opinion and decision on what should happen. And then finding those people that I felt like were genuinely part of that process because they were trying to have my best interests at heart and not necessarily just trying to sell me on something or um, move me in a direction that ultimately best you know benefited them as well. So I definitely would recommend that people take the time to do it because it really boosted my confidence in making some of those decisions. Um, For example, when I I knew I wanted to get started in real estate investing, and there's so many different things you can do. Like everybody has a different opinion on how it should be done. You could do Airbnb, you could do homes, you could do duplexes, apartment buildings, like trailer parks. Like there's so many different things. But I ended up joining a local real estate group and asked as many questions as I could talked to many different people, formed relationships, and ultimately through those conversations was able to make a decision I was most comfortable with that I thought would be best for for my family and I. So not having your thinking partner is devastating in a lot of ways, but 
having those those people around you and getting their input and opinion can go a really long way in helping you feel more confident and comfortable in making a good decision for you. Yeah. And this is a common thing we've heard from widows is that a financial advisor, a good accountant was just really important to helping them in their financial journey. But it can be so hard to find a financial advisor that you feel good about. Do you have any tips of things that you did or how you found your financial advisor or, or accountant or anybody else that you put on your board of advisors? Yeah. Well, I think it's through um, recommendations or just having conversations with them and where possible having some of somewhat of a foundation of like, these are the core things I believe. So for example, uh, I'm not a perfect Dave Ramsey person, but I do like a lot of what he says around consumer debt and how that's viewed. And so as I was thinking about financial planning, I wanted to work with someone who wasn't going to be suggesting that I go into debt or that I carry a lot of debt. And believe it or not, there are some financial mm-hmm. planners that do, you know, they're all about leveraging debt and good debt. And even in the real estate investing world, it's very yeah, popular. Very much. Yeah. That you should, you know, heavily leverage debt on those things. And it's not an easy answer of what's right or wrong. I think each person has to reflect to say, okay, what are the core things that are important to me that I don't want to compromise on? And how can I find, you know, another person in that field who they educate that same way or they believe something similar or they take the time to help explain to me why my thinking is wrong. Not somebody who is just going to say, well, look, okay, yeah, yeah. You've got this amount of money. You have these options. Here's what you need to do. Somebody who will say, you know, here are some different options. This is what I believe is best for you and why. And then if you have a preconceived notion or a belief, maybe that's not fully correct or that could be modified, you're open to hearing that and understanding it. It's important to find that person who will take the time to actually explain all of that to you. So I think those were some of the things that were important for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. Because it's not, not everybody's a fit for everybody else. I think that's important because of the values, having good aligned values is uh, an interesting thing to consider when choosing who's going to advise you and help you make decisions. That's great. Well, can we go back a little bit? Um, so at what point during COVID did your husband get sick? Was like at the beginning of COVID? No, it actually uh, was July of 2021. So it was right as Delta, the Delta variant was emerging. And when we had COVID, it's not what most people say when they have COVID. I mean, we were the most sick as we could have been literally on death's door, bedridden. Uh, I couldn't brush my teeth or take a shower without nearly passing out. Like it was just really tough. Um, My heart and lungs were inflamed. So for months afterwards, I couldn't do hardly basic activities. So um, it was right around that time, July, at the end of June, we got sick. And then he ultimately died on July 17th of 2021. So you're approaching two years of this widowhood journey. Wow. And so you were like, even when he passed away, you were still pretty sick, right? Oh, yeah, I was, um, I, it was like I had just, and I remember distinctly texting, I think it was my boss at the time, and I was like, okay, I'm on day eight, I feel like I'm going to die, 
I am emotionally exhausted because it was a lot like grief. Like you would have days where you're feeling progress and you're feeling better. And then the next day, it was like you took 10 steps backwards and you're just going, how is this possible that I'm on this trajectory of, okay, it's day nine, I feel better. Day 10, I feel better. Day 12, now I feel like I'm on day three. What's happening? Um, and so I had my neighbors, one of the the best things I tell people to do is just show up to help people who are widowed. So, you know, I, I hadn't mowed my grass in three or four weeks and we had to call out the brush hog because the fields had gotten so bogged down. And, you know, one of the best things they did was just say, hey, we're going to come out on Tuesday. Does that day work for you or any other day? And uh, so for me, I didn't have to like look up someone who could mow. I didn't have to think about any of that. They just showed up and they did it and just made sure it was on a day that was helpful for me. But um, I remember even in July and then August, just sweeping my back porch, I would have to stop and take multiple breaks. I couldn't even sit in the swimming pool um, without having trouble breathing. And um, it was just very, um, very difficult going through that. Although sometimes I'm grateful that in some ways I was Fog, foggy minded during all of that. Uh, I think that might have maybe helped me with what was happening with him because I wasn't allowed to go to the hospital. Um, he, before he was put on the ventilator, he could not really talk, uh, but he could listen and obviously blink and, and talk a little bit. But um, if he tried to talk, his breathing capacity would just really go downhill. So it was very frustrating. I know for a lot of people with COVID related deaths where you can't be in the hospital, you can't go see your person. You don't even, most people don't even get a chance to say goodbye that that's uh, feels like unresolved trauma that happens when you lose your spouse. Yeah. That's really rough. Were your kids sick too during this time? Um, surprisingly, no. Shortly after one or two of them did get sick, but they really recovered super quickly, like within a few days. So they had mild fever and maybe like some flu-like symptoms. Um, but if my kids hadn't brought me like Gatorade and oatmeal <laughs> every day, I probably just wouldn't have eaten. So I'm very fortunate, like for my, um, and grateful for my in-laws who would, you know, drop groceries off at the house so the kids could at least eat and have food and, I didn't have to worry about any of that. But uh, fortunately, somehow, them bringing food in and out to our room, um, they were able to stay healthy for the most part. Oh, that's really good. It's good to hear. So after you recovered from COVID, you went back to work. And at what, what, what was your decision to decide to change jobs? Yeah, so I, um, I noticed and what I... A lot of other widows notice those, those first few months you have horrendous brain fog. So, you know, I never knew what it was like to have ADHD, which is what Nathan had. But I felt a very similar experience with grief where I'd walk in one room, forget what I was doing. I was easily distracted. I couldn't focus like to read a book or watch a TV show or to even care about those things was so far from my mind. I uh, noticed a uh, growing apathy for those things. And um, in the organization that I worked in, we were growing extremely fast. I had 4,000 employees that reported up to me and they were across over 100 hospitals throughout the U.S. 
So I knew that I was really in a position where I needed to fully be there for my team. I felt like I knew what they needed to continue to grow and be sustainable and those types of things. And I did the best that I could for that first year. And I worked very closely with the leaders um, intentionally to help mentor them up and get them prepared for the day that eventually I would leave. And I didn't know clearly exactly what date that would be, but I knew at some point in the future that would happen. And that was kind of our culture anyway, was to build up the next generation of leaders. So um, I just remember being at a point where I had enough in savings that I could take some time off of work. I could take some time to just breathe. I felt like I hadn't been given that opportunity. I jumped back into work really quickly. Um, the week after he died, we had his funeral and then I was back to work pretty much that next week. Wow. And <laughs> for me, I, I should have taken off longer. I think for me, I felt like I'd already been off for so long with the sickness and everything that had happened. And I wanted a sense of normalcy, like a sense of what life was supposed to be like in my routine. So I did go back to work very quickly. Um, and I did talk with several of my leaders to say, I know I'm not the same person that left here. Uh, I realized that I probably come across differently. And I feel you, you may feel that I've changed, but our core values and our core operating principles are still the same. I just tried to reassure my team that the way we operated wasn't going to change, that maybe just my communication style or um, where I needed their help was going to be different. And um, my kids were becoming teenagers. They were involved a lot in after-school activities and they were shuffled a lot back and forth between my house and my in-law's house, like a few nights here, a few nights there while I traveled. And it just really kind of culminated to this point where I feel like I can't fully be the person I want to be for my team at work. I can't fully be the mom that I want to be to my kids at home. And for my in-laws, I know they didn't mind the help and they didn't mind for the kids to come over. But when I was asking them to take this person to horse lessons and this person to band lessons and this person here and there, it just kind of felt like I, it was too much. So um, I ended up now I manage um, some rental properties and I also have an online community for widows. And that has really just helped me have a much more flexible schedule and the ability to work from, you know, for the most part, anywhere that I want. So that's been a really nice change and change of pace from uh, such a rapidly growing organization where I was before. Yeah. So do you manage rental properties for someone else or, or your own portfolio? Yeah, for myself. For your own, like these are your own investments. Yeah. That's great. So you're, you're self-employed. You answer to no one but yourself. That's great. <laughs> That's a big jump to make from working from a company to being self-employed, especially because you talk about being kind of, kind of conservative after your husband died. But, you know, taking the jump into being your own employer is kind of a risky situation. Did you feel like that, though, at the time? I did. Um, I, I obviously did. And I was very open to, you know, whatever opportunity may come up. I think at the time, I just wanted time to breathe. And I fortunately had been able to save up enough where I had a few months worth of savings. So I didn't feel like, oh, I have to get a job next week. 
doing something else. Um, I had the ability to take my time to decide what I wanted to do, to decide what that next chapter was going to be. Um, so I was very blessed in that regard and grateful that I had not carried a lot of debt and had a lot of payments because that really, really helped me uh, in those moments with with knowing what I would need to spend or, or focus money on. So, but yeah, it was definitely nerve wracking. And to know like what type of property to invest in. We looked at lots of properties and I thought, you know, I don't know anything about rehabs and fixing things up and, you know, buildings that look like they should be condemned. I don't want to get involved in any of that. So, um, yeah, I it, it was just through having that board of advisors and working with people to understand, you know, the pros and cons of different things and, you know, taking my time to transition at work. I had made up in my mind maybe six months before I left that that was really my end goal. So it allowed me to focus on what all I needed to have in place in order to be able to make that happen. I think a lot of people I talk to and widows, it's very appealing to work for themselves because often you have children you're still trying to take care of or have more flexibility because now you're fulfilling a lot of different roles that you did, you don't get to share with another partner. Do you feel like being self-employed gives you that flexibility? And, and what would you say to women who are like, oh, I'd like to start my own business? Yeah, I think if that's something you want to do, I think go for it. I definitely would say, you know, take take a leap when there's as least risk as possible. So if there are things that you can do on the side, maybe they want to set up something through Etsy. Maybe they want to do, you know, coaching like leadership or life coaching, or maybe they want to make something and sell it, like whatever it is, as little risk as possible, but to try it and see what happens and know that it may not look exactly and perfectly like you thought it would, but uh, you can pivot and adapt. I mean, we've great pivoters. We've had to adapt to all kinds of things. So there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to do that. Um, entrepreneurship for me has been a dream for a long time. And uh, I wanted to actually be a leadership coach and have a leadership community because it's something I'm very passionate about. Uh, I just didn't have the time and the effort really to be consistent while I was still working. So for me, having a community where I help serve widows and people who are grieving was a natural progression. It just, the topic wasn't what I thought it was going to be um, before, you know, I had lost Nathan. So um, having the time to work on that and put some things in place has been really fulfilling. And um, I think if, if other folks are interested in that, then absolutely they should try it. Do you do coaching for widows? Is that? Yes. What, yeah. Um, and like coaching around like grief or life coaching. What's kind of yeah, so we do um so we have an online community of widows and basically we have courses in there. We do live events two to three times a month, and then usually once a quarter I'll have like a big public type of live event. Uh, we did our first local meetup uh just a couple of weeks ago in a town a couple of hours away. Uh, so we're playing around with live events and things that we can do in person. And then I also do like some one-on-one -on -one life coaching if people are interested in that. Um, and I do some leadership coaching on the side, just people that I've worked with before that know me and trust me and um, enjoy having that interaction. So um, we offer a little bit of everything. But I think for people, the biggest thing is to have and what I wanted to create was 
a community of people who understand, maybe not your specific situation, but they understand the journey of grief and the challenges you're going through and the stereotypes and the opinions from people that you didn't ask for and all of those things that come with it. And then just a a week or so ago, I completed um, the grief recovery method certification program. So I'll start to host, it's a little, it's more structured. It's typically an eight week program for people to go through, but I'll be able to host that program for anyone who's grieving an unresolved relationship, loss of a pet, loss of a loved one, maybe a divorce or they lost their job. Um, but I found this program through a book that I had read and it was, it's in my top three book recommendations for sure. It's very good. And the program is the only evidence based program in the world. So I was really excited to have found that. And even for me, it helped me just resolve things that I felt like I wish I would have said to Nathan or could have had the opportunity to say whether it was something positive or even something negative that I felt like was still unresolved between us. So um, that'll help, I think, expand more to people that are grieving. But widows are definitely something I have a passion for. And people, they're just good, resilient people. Yeah, great. Well, you have to tell us what, what is the book? What is that inspired you to do this? Yeah, so it's called the Grief Recovery Method Handbook. And the first probably half or so is really helping explain all the intricacies about grief and why grief is so hard. As a culture, we uh, don't really teach people how to process loss. So if you lose something, you might be told things like, oh, you'll get another one or, oh, don't cry about it. It'll be okay. Or, oh, you're, you know, you're sad that you didn't make the cheer team go cry in your room about it. You know, whenever just as we grow up as human beings, if we have a loss, we're taught to suppress it. We're taught to get over it, to shake it off, to be tough. All of these things that are not inherently correct with processing loss and grief. So it gets expounded many times over when you actually lose someone who's very close to you. Um, And so you'll hear people say things like, oh, he's in a better place. Or, oh, you're still young, you'll get married again. Um, Things that are not helpful for widows. In fact, things that are anti, you know, the opposite of helpful. So, um, but things that I think had not really been articulated clearly about why we are not taught how to handle grief culturally. So that was really good. And then it walks you through the process of identifying the losses that you've had, of identifying the relationship ups and downs. So you pick a relationship of a person you want to work on. So I picked Nathan. And so you identify like some of the good times and some of the bad times and Then you also work through uh, writing like apology statements and also forgiving them for things that have happened. And so a lot of grief is leaves you with a feeling of guilt or a feeling of what they call is wanting something to be different, better or more. Like, I wish this would have been different. I wish we would have done this more. I wish that would have been better. And so this process really walks people through how to resolve a lot of that and feel like they can close some of those open loops. And even for me, two years later, being a, a 
strong student of grief and someone who tried to check all the boxes up front, I felt like it was hugely beneficial for me to go through this even just, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's great. We'll have to link to that in the show notes so people can check it out. She took a pretty big pay cut going from just, you know, an executive job to self-employed. Was that scary at all for you or how do you handle that change? Sure, it was intimidating. I think part of it is prioritizing what I wanted now um, and that what I want right now isn't necessarily what I want forever in the future. But believing that, you know, I can continue to build and create something that grows even maybe beyond what I had before um, was exciting to me. And um, I really just wanted to take some time to breathe for a bit. So I wasn't uh, necessarily having the expectation of making the same amount or living exactly the same lifestyle. So for me, it was maybe a little simpler than most people because while, of course, I still have bills and I still have things that I have to pay, I'm not consumed by them. I was really bad with money for a long, long time. You know, I had all kinds of student debts and credit card. And I remember even making a really nice salary, just looking up and being like, how how do we make this much money? And I still feel broke. And it's because everything you look at has a payment attached to it. So we had worked for many years to completely change that lifestyle. So all I had really was the mortgage left on my house whenever Nathan died and um, the normal bills that come with just living. So for me, it was an easier ability to jump to a different income stream or or different expectation than it would be for the person who consistently lives at or above their means from an income perspective. That's so impressive that you changed your money habits. It's very hard for people to do. Can you tell us about that process and how you kind of came to the, we only have a mortgage now? (laughs) Yes. So uh, I definitely, um, lots of Dave Ramsey podcasts, let me just say, And I was so angry and frustrated. Like, I don't like being told no. I don't like being told I can't do something. And so, you know, every now and then Nathan would call and be like, okay, well, we need to watch what we're spending because, you know, we're really getting close on our bank account or whatever. And that would just make me so mad. And, you know, neither one of us were really organized with coming up with a budget or any of that. And to me, a budget felt like a diet. Like it was just nothing about that was going to be fun at all. But I knew that I didn't want to live that way forever. And I knew that, you know, what was I going to do when I turn 60 or 70 and want to retire? Like, I have nothing. You know, I'm not accumulating anything except just stuff that you start to resent because you're having to pay for it. So I listened to a ton of the podcast. I read the book. My dad had tried to get me to look into this many years before, and I just, you know, blew it off. But I was at the point where I'm like, okay, I got to do something different. And so what I would try to focus on was really what what am I working towards, right? Like this really sucks, putting every bonus that you get every year and paying towards student loans. There's nothing fun about that. No. (laughs) You know, everybody else is like buying nice stuff, going nice places and like, oh, what are you going to do with your bonus? And you're like, well, I'm paying off some credit cards and some student loan. Like, that's not very exciting. But what was exciting 
was having like a countdown spreadsheet of and seeing like, okay, can I do it faster? Like coming up with ways that I could do it faster, better. I even started um, several years ago, I did freelance copywriting on the side. So I would go on like Upwork and I would do it just from my own website. And I learned how to build websites. I learned how to do marketing. I learned how to write sales letters and those skills that now help me with my own business. Um, So it took a lot of time, but I just was like intense about, I want to get all this stuff paid off. So I think for me, it was like just finally getting to the point where I was angry and frustrated and tired of not having options. That's what money is for me. It's not stuff. It's like I have options of what I can do. And if you don't have money and you're broke, you don't have a lot of options. Um, And having an alleviated sense of stress when life throws those curveballs that we know are going to happen when you have to replace tires and you have to when your husband dies when you know all these things happen that you don't expect that's not something that's just a prominent in front of your face worry um that was a big really a big deal for me too so uh fortunately uh by the grace of god you know nathan got on board and he's like all right whatever whatever you want to do we'll do it and um you know he he was very disciplined about it so i was really grateful i didn't have to fight with him over that so i think it was feeling the pain of needing to change having a vision of where you want to go and then hearing success stories of other people who are doing it and other people who are saying it was worth it um makes you feel like okay i can eventually get there yeah that's great it's one of the things i hope people get out of my podcast is just some inspiration and hope and hearing other people's stories that that things can you can have financial freedom and things can get better and uh so that's great and i love going back to some things you said through that and what you said before about changing jobs is that sometimes money isn't always about the money right it's about what it allows you to do and the freedom allows you to have and so taking a pay cut is sometimes the thing that you need to do to accomplish your goals. So that's great that you're kind of following more of the why and not the how always. Yeah. And I think that's important. Yeah, because it's hard. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's hard because you want, you want that comfort and reassurance of that normal paycheck, you know, that's coming in. But for me, it was just a not never, it's just not right now. And, you know, okay, maybe I won't eat as much. Maybe I won't take as many trips or, you know, do as many things, but it still was well worth it to me for the time factor and what I wanted to be able to do, you know, personally and for my family. So. Yeah. Great. What about life insurance? Was there some life insurance that you guys had that helped in this process? There was um, definitely enough to cover like funeral costs and to help go towards didn't pay off her house, but, you know, it did definitely help make a dent in getting that done. And so even though um, there was some there, it wasn't like an extravagant amount or like, oh, now I'm set for life or, you know, anything like that. So even though, again, a lot of financial planners will say you shouldn't pay off your house, you shouldn't, you know, you should keep that low interest rate. That's good debt. Some people follow that and some people don't. For me, I just wanted to have, I I was in such a mindset where I wanted as least risk as possible. 
So I felt like I had quite a bit in savings. I wanted to get my house paid off as much as I could. So a lot of it went to just covering some of those expenses, uh, any medical expenses, you know, that I had things for the kids that they were going to need. I'm helping my son. I'm paying for his college as he goes through that. So doing those types of things and then going towards, uh, at least towards paying off our house definitely helped with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. I know a lot of people have questions about like how much life insurance you should have. And it's interesting because your husband wasn't the breadwinner. So did you have less life insurance on him because he wasn't bringing income or I don't know if you can like speak much to that about how you decided how much life insurance to have? Yeah. So I'll tell you, I definitely would have had a lot more. And the sad part of this story was we had met. So this was July. We had met maybe in January with our insurance agent because the amount we had was an amount we had like 10 years ago. You know, we weren't (laughs) making nearly as much. And so, you know, my, my perspective was 10 times my income is what I have now and what I wanted. And, you know, maybe not quite as much for him, but at least still a significant amount. And uh, we had met with our life insurance agent in January and they came back with a quote and it was like, oh, you know, that's a little ridiculous. You know, I've gotten quotes from other places. We need to just keep shopping around or whatever. And then it just became one of those things that you just kept kicking that can down the road and not going back to it. And so I probably would have had at least eight times the amount on him of what I did just because it would have been nice to have. I I would definitely have made sure like our house was fully paid off. Our kids college was set, you know, all of as much, not as much as I could have afforded, but definitely enough to where all that could have just been parked over in the right type of account and pulled it out as needed um, and been more of a, I guess, significant impact there. So I think generally what I hear is about 10 times your income, especially if you still have dependents and folks that rely on you and your income to survive. I don't know if you have a different amount, but that's probably yeah uh, what I've tried to use. Yeah. Yeah. No, 10 times is a good rule of thumb, a good starting point. I think if you have like a good insurance agent or a good financial advisor, they might help you come up with like a more specific number. But yeah, no, I think 10 times income is a good starting point. And I think when I meet with people, the big issue is like, well, this will never happen to me. And they don't, that's another bill to add to their, you know, their budget of, oh, I got to pay X amount for life insurance to have this much. Well, we'll just cut it down. It's not until you actually need it, right? That you really feel, that's when you really feel like, oh, that's, it was worth paying. And then it's too late. Yeah. And uh, the same thing happened with our, our will. Uh, we had wills drawn up when we lived in Ohio. Um, and we moved back to Arkansas in 2020. And I went through a massive panic because we had not updated our wills to Arkansas. And so the attorney said, well, you know, in that case, you're going to be subject to Arkansas state law if they don't agree to acknowledge the will that you had in Ohio. And essentially what that would have meant for me was uh, everything that was in his name alone, like the, all the car titles, <laughs> And a lot of the things that we had just out of convenience in his name, I would have basically had to sell or sell back to myself. I would have gotten one third and the kids would have had two thirds that would have had to be probated through court every time I wanted to spend it for clothes or band camp or anything else. So just thinking about it from that 
you know, fortunately, Arkansas did honor the Ohio will. But had they not, I really could have lost a lot of things. So we ended up doing a trust that has a will built into it as kind of like a, a backup specifically for Arkansas. But to your point, those are the things that until it happens and you go through it, you just don't really think about it. And even uh, I know a lot of widows now that they don't think about life insurance for themselves and they have kids and people that depend on them. And so who should know better about life insurance than widows? Yeah. But sometimes yeah. we're like the most guilty people about it. Yeah. Well, I, I remember one widow telling me, I just don't want to think about it. Like, I just can't handle the thought that there's an additional trauma or change that can happen to my life or to my kids. And so, yeah, it is difficult to to take the time to, to sometimes do the right planning, but important. It is. And even, um, you know, I've talked with widows that they had a spouse that got, you know, a six month diagnosis, like you've got six months to live. And they were still shocked when their spouse actually died because in their minds, they were going to be that 1% that made it. Mm-hmm. And it just did not sink in that, no, really, this is going to happen. So uh, I think that's very part of our human nature is we don't want to, we don't want to face death like that. Oh, no, very much. One other thing you'd mentioned was that for a long time you had, you kind of were cash stockpiling cash because you just felt so conservative, wanted to minimize your risk. It sounds like that switched for you. You've invested more. What helped you make that switch? Because women actually tend to be more conservative generally. And then I've seen it with widows that widows, you know, are also much more conservative than most investors because probably things you talked about you already went through a lot of trauma and you want that safety net and i find a lot of women are leaving things on the table growth keeping up with inflation by stockpiling cash but there's you know that security is also important but how did you come to terms with that or like move on to i can take a little more risk in my financial life I think part of it was, you know, talking to other people. Part of it was reflecting on, okay, what does everyone say on average is a good, true emergency fund? So maybe that's three to six months or, you know, whatever it is for your particular situation. So what am I comfortable with? And knowing that, okay, worst case scenario, I can go get a different job. I can go work two or three jobs. You know, it's not like I would only have one week's notice and then I'm just totally out of money and have no options. You know, I could sell a car. I could, you know, um, put things on Facebook Marketplace if I had to. So I think it was just like trying to rationalize that with myself. And then I just started to feel this growing need, as you said, to want to invest it. And where I kept getting stuck was I wasn't sure, okay, how much do I want to put in real estate and how much do I want to put in something like, you know, index funds, mutual funds, stock market, whatever. Um, And I don't know that I've perfectly even still gotten there yet with what that comfort level is, just especially being new to real estate and what that looks like um, and how that can help you from a tax advantage even. So I would say I'm still trying to navigate that some, but I had this growing sense that I was just wasting, not wasting my money, but that I was wasting an opportunity. And so I really wanted to find this balance of, okay, I know I want to do some real estate investing. So maybe let me just start there and see what I can find and find something that I really genuinely feel good about what that looks like and that I'm not just losing money to inflation. I'm not losing the opportunity to earn some sort of return back on the money that I have. So it was 
wanting to be able to make a decision fairly quickly, but then also you're not supposed to make it too quickly because you might not be making a good decision. So it was just really kind of this balance and a lot of prayer of, you know, I, I need to be shown that this is the direction that I need to take and knowing that I'm being wise with my money and not just like putting it in an account, kind of like burying it in the dirt and just best case scenario, I have that same amount of money, probably worthless, but at least it's there. But I knew that I wanted it to grow. Yeah, great. And I think it can take time, right? Too just time to have some distance from from the trauma and the grief and learning. Education is really key. And it sounds like you did a lot of that by talking to people, educating yourself to help you be more confident in investing. So that's great. Yeah, it 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 definitely helps. And I think it even just helps you know, like, what am I getting into, right? So if I do this, what are the pros and cons? If I do that, what are the pros and cons? And talking with several different people, like my taxes are getting more complicated. So I interviewed probably four or five different tax, you know, people that were tax strategists or CPAs. And I would write down like all of their recommendations they would give me in their consult of what they would do. And I finally found a, a group that they brought me all of the suggestions, right? And they they have their own people that they learned from. So I wanted to be around people not only who knew, for the most part, what they were doing and they were kind of staying on top of the latest updates, but they had mentors or they had, you know, conferences they went to. Like they were constantly learning the latest and greatest so that they could feed that down to me. And we could all, you know, being be really from the best perspective possible end up in a really great place. And so, um, but I wouldn't have known that that company would be a good decision if I hadn't talked to, you know, three or four other companies or people before I ended up speaking with them. So that really helped me feel very confident that this was the right fit. And these people knew what they were talking about. And they really aligned with what I was thinking was the right thing to do. Well, you've shared so many great ideas for people and tips and what you've learned in your journey. Is there anything else that you feel like widows should know about like finances or something important you've learned? I I don't know that there's anything else that I would say other than what we've talked about, which is finding that right person to help guide you. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to, you know, know things when you walk in and talk with a financial planner or a coach for the first time. It's very intimidating. But, um, you know, Nicole, you've been very easy to talk to. There's anyone else really that I've talked to has been very understanding, taking the time to walk me through things. And that can be a good key indicator of whether or not somebody is good to work with. Will they take the time to teach you? And will they take the time to explain things? Or do they just sit, you know, in the ivory tower and tell you what you should be doing and give you a funny look if you question why or want to understand. But I think it's important because having lost your thinking partner, having a good advisor, a good planner, a good strategist in your corner can help you have that confidence that you've lost in making some of those good decisions. Not great. Last is, you know, is there anything that you'd like to thank your husband for, Nathan, and that he did for you and helping you be where you're at and have the confidence that you do have? Oh my gosh, we're going to be here all day. Um, I I think that I would, Nathan, oh my goodness, he was my number one cheerleader. And uh, he really did so much 
around the house and to support me and to take things off of me so that I could focus on my career and what we were doing. And he just, you know, and when I needed to move Ohio for work, he moved when, you know, and it was never a question. We hadn't even visited there. He's like, sure, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And when, you know, I wanted to start getting us out of debt, he was on board and he's just always been such a good encourager and supporter. So I would definitely thank him for that. Great. And where can people find you if they are interested in, you know, the work that you're doing with other widows and coaching? Yeah, definitely. So my website is bravewidow.com. And you can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Brave Widow. And then you have your own podcast, right? Yes, I do. Um, Brave Widow podcast is on YouTube and on all major podcast players. And I actually have some resources out there for free. And I tend to send people on my email list things for free. So uh, you can also find those free resources on the website. Okay. And we'll put some stuff in the show notes for people. And um, yeah, I was on your podcast. So that was a very, and it was really super fun to be interviewed by Emily. And that's how I originally found you is through your podcast and listening to it. So you have some great things you share there. Yeah. Well, I definitely enjoyed having you there and uh, we can, certainly your episode's going to be coming out soon too. So. Oh, great. Well, thank you, Emily, for coming in and sharing so much about your, your journey and your story. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of He's Gone, But the Money's Not. If you'd like to explore more about the podcast or discover additional resources related to financial planning, please visit our website at rockhousefinancial.com. And remember, your financial journey is unique, but you don't have to navigate it alone. Feel free to reach out to us for financial planning services tailored to your specific needs. Once again, thank you for being part of our community. We look forward to having you back for more inspiring stories and practical financial wisdom on He's Gone, But the Money's Not. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Rockhouse Financial is an SEC registered investment advisor and the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the opinions of Rockhouse Financial or any other sponsors of the podcast. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any state or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.